The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In this episode, we are going to do another edition of Ask an Indian. Sarah will answer questions from our listeners. And so, uh, good morning, Sarah. Hi, Sherry. Uh, How are you doing? Great. How about you? Good. I am ready to ask you some questions. Are you ready to answer them? Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) All right. What is the deal about dressing up like an Indian, whether that's for Halloween or when learning about Lewis and Clark in school? Why is that offensive? Yeah, the first thing I, I want to just start with a definition, which is, or, or maybe a difference, the difference between a costume and regalia. So a costume is a pretend outfit. It's an outfit you wear pretending that you're something else. And regalia is a ceremonial dress. So a Native American's clothing, or when they're going into um, ceremony or prayer, if they're dancing, um, that's regalia. It's not a costume in the sense of a pretend outfit. Outfit, And it's often a prized possession. Um, some regalia has been, you know, transferred from a grandmother to granddaughter and down through generations. And it's considered to be priceless. Often pieces of regalia have been handmade either by the person who's wearing it or by relatives or um, craftspeople. And it's considered to be really really a value. So when <clears throat> when a person is participating in ceremony and wearing uh, ceremonial dress, that regalia um, reflects the spirit and the customs of their people and, and others that they're honoring. And it's it's not um, it's not something to be taken lightly. And so um, often, you know, it takes years to collect the items um, to complete a regalia. And um, so, you know, when people go to powwows or other other events where Native people are gathering, there's often this desire to touch people's regalia. And uh, it's really important not to do that um, because hmm. it's an expression of spirit. Often hmm. it's been prayed over and it's been blessed. And hmm. so... Um, whereas a costume is something you dress up in to pretend to be something you're not. Um, and, and, you know, native ceremonial redress dress are sacred and, um, traditional. And so some of this information I'm getting from histco.com, and this is also my experience. Um, but if you do a search, you would find more about this. So when a priest uh, from the Catholic tradition or the Episcopal tradition, or I think they're the Lutherans um, have priests also in um, the Orthodox tradition, when they put on sacred robes to preach or, you know, to do a homily, 
that's not a costume. You know, those are consecrated um, clothing. Um, and the same with um, Arabs when they put on um, headdresses and head coverings for religious re- reasons, they're also not costumes. It's the traditional wear of peoples, you know, in, in the United States. And the clothing that natives wear are the traditional wear of the, the first people of America and for, of the land. And so it's, it's really offensive to put those things on. Um, as a pretend thing. And so one of the ways I think it might be useful to think about this, and once again, I don't speak for everyone, I just speak for myself. You know, it's, we don't do blackface anymore, because we recognize that that's really offensive. And I use that word, we, um, as in the universal we, I personally have never worn blackface. That's sort of an odd thing to say. But, um, you know, in the United States, that used to be a, a cultural or a socially acceptable thing. And pretending to be an Indian, it's just like blackface. It's, it's not okay. You know, it's, it's, it's offensive and people will, you know, once again, sort of exaggerate, um, uh, stereotypes and say how, and, you know, you know what I mean? The stuff you heard on cartoons and when you were a kid, I mean, it's just, it's offensive. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I just, it's just, I think just don't do it. You know, if you have, (laughs) if you have a a native American friend who gives you as a gift, some piece of regalia, that's something to be honored and treasured. And, um, you know, they're going to help you know when it's appropriate to wear that. If ever You, you can wear it and it's treasured, but that's different from dressing up in a costume. Yeah. All right. Just say no. Um, so next question is that I know you can't speak for all native people, but really what do native people think about indigenous people's day, Thanksgiving, Columbus day, you know, et cetera. Sure. I mean, this can be confusing too, because there, there are multiple holidays that are informally and somewhat formally recognized. And so I'll just kind of go through a few of these. I want to start with Columbus Day because that's been a federal holiday. Um, And so, um, you know, Columbus Day is the day historically um, that is um, meant to observe um, Christopher Columbus for discovering America. And so um, that has been uh, let me just say, reframed by at least 12 states and the District of Columbia um, to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. And um, those states, if you're curious, Alaska, Hawaii, Iowa, Louisiana, Maine, Michigan, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oregon, South Dakota, Vermont, and uh, Wisconsin, in addition to Washington, D.C. So, you know, and uh, listeners, if I've missed your state, you could let us know that. It'd be interesting to know. Um, at last count, I think there were 13, but there may be others by now. Um, so uh, last year in 2021, President Biden issued a proclamation on Friday, um, uh, or I'm sorry, issued a proclamation to observe October 11 um, as the day to honor Native Americans. I think he said their resilience, their contributions to American society throughout history, and et cetera, et cetera. And so many people were confused and said, oh, Columbus Day is now, you know, Indigenous Peoples Day. And so that was confusing. But that proclamation was just for that date, which was October 11, 2021. And so um, anyway, but it was a good, I think many 
activists and community saw it as a good shift um, to, you know, at that national level to demonstrate the importance of thinking about a shift. Um, so, it, so instead of celebrating Christopher Columbus, um, which is sort of celebrating colonization, to honor indigenous peoples, the first peoples of the land who have been the stewards of the land and uh, who have faced um, assimilation and extermination and continue to survive and continue to um, to stand as land and water protectors. So, um, and you'll see NPR says that, that President Biden's recognition also helped to correct a whitewashed American history that has glorified Europeans like Christopher Columbus, um, who have committed violence against indigenous communities. So, um, yeah, so that's that's Columbus Day, and then the, or now Indigenous Peoples Day. So um, there is also then American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month, and that is celebrated in November each year. So often you'll see celebrations going on throughout the month of November. Um, sometimes the first day in November is a time when many people commemorate um, uh, Indigenous peoples and that month. And so what the heck do we have these, you know, the American Indian Alaska Native Heritage Month? What is that for? Well, it's a time to celebrate celebrate um, rich and diverse cultures and traditions and histories and to acknowledge the important contributions of Native people. So that's that. Um, well, well, there are commemorations that happen there. There's no federal holiday per se connected to that. Then we also have the International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples, and that is an international day, and um, and that's in August. And um, uh, the United Nations um, honors and recognizes this day. Um, and so the UN says, you know, we must demand Indigenous peoples' inclusion, participation, and approval in the constitution of a system with social and economic benefits for all. So in 2021, the theme of International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples was leaving no one behind Indigenous peoples and the call for a new social contract. And I thought that was interesting because it gave the UN an opportunity to really talk about what a social contract is. So from my point of view, a social contract is when a society has an agreement with a with its people. So in the U.S., you know, part of the way the social contract is 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 expressed is in the American dream, where um, you know the United States um, has been um, dubbed as the land of opportunity, where a person can have freedom of speech and um, be able to seek a livelihood, and if they're clever and uh, and hardworking, they should be able to achieve any level of success. That's kind of the social contract, and that social contract um, does not extend to all people um, because there are people who are uh, who are intentionally disenfranchised or excluded from that contract. For example. Um, uh, immigrants uh, who do not have uh, um, credentials um, are not invited to participate in that, for example, right? So there is no social contract for them because they are they are legally discriminated against. And many indigenous people throughout the world um, see that in the same way, that there is no social contract with them um, because they're systematically and legally disenfranchised from enjoying the same rights um, as other groups of people. And so 
Um, last one I guess I'll talk about today and touch on is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is really confusing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you find that to be true. Yes. I'll tell you, it's one of my favorite holidays because mm-hmm. it's, to me, it is about, if it, if I just take it on the surface, it's about Thanksgiving and gratitude. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I have a, a dear native friend who said to me in some ways, Thanksgiving is to her is actually the quintessential uh, Native American holiday because that sense of gratitude for the gifts of the land is actually so important throughout the year for Native Americans. But of course, then there's this history and the story and the mythology behind it that is so so problematic. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's important to understand that, you know, for many Native people, Thanksgiving is a day of mourning and protest. Um, and many, many Native people commemorate it that way um, mm. because it, it, you know, it marks the arrival of settlers in North America and also the centuries of oppression and genocide that followed. So, you know, the, the, the story, the kind of, you know, cute story um, what, what do you call that? Do you call that meat cute story <laughs> of natives and, and colonists is, you know, oh, you know, where, you know, the natives share their bounty and it's so nice. And there's this lovely story. And that, and that covers over then the, the generations of, um, of oppression that native people have endured as um, the settlers expanded into their territories and tried to erase them from, from the continent. And then, you know, when that was not successful, put them on reservations and um, further and further diminished the land and had many, many eras of policies to remove indigenous peoples from their land, including um, broken treaties, you know, the, the boarding schools uh, era when kids were removed from their families, you know, many, many eras of oppression for indigenous people. So that, so that, that sort of meet cute is really offensive in the context of, of that long history. So, um, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday in November in the United States. Um, and so, um, let's see, United American Indians of New England, um, that is a group, um, that has recognized, you know, the fourth Thursday in November as the national day of mourning for native Americans and their allies. So that's interesting. Of course, many indigenous families, uh, celebrate Thanksgiving and, uh, many do not. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever met a native American who didn't have mixed feelings about it. Um, yeah. wait, <clears throat> this, um, this group, United American Indians of new England, here's a quote from them. Thanksgiving Day is a reminder of the genocide of millions of Native people, the theft of Native lands, and the relentless assault on Native culture, Um, and that participants in the National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and their struggles. So, um, so anyway, I, so I don't know if that is, if that is illuminating, Sherry. I think Thanksgiving is is a good opportunity to to learn and to talk uh, with with your family and friends and congregation about, about what you mean by Thanksgiving and um, how you're going to commemorate that in a good way. And then I guess, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. 
one last thing I want to say about it is that, you know, in the dominant culture in Thanksgiving, it's really, you know, giving thanks at, at the harvest. So, that, so in the spring crops are planted and whatever, and then, and then in the fall, when, when the bounty is harvested, that that's the day, you know, then you give thanks for all that. And, and in the, in the Yakima tradition. So once again, the Yakima people are the people I live among here on the Yakima Reservation in central Washington. So just once again, to remind our listeners, I am not a Yakima woman. I'm Tewa from um, Northern New Mexico, but I happen to live on the Yakima Reservation. And in this place, the, 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 the feast, um, it's called the root digging feast happens in the spring and they have this feast before they go out to harvest. Hmm. So they give thanks first in the spring and they honor the creator in the land before they go out and with humility. Hmm. So, and I, you know, I haven't heard this said to me, but, you know, in observing, you know, this practice, what I have noticed is this, uh, this commitment to um, taking only what you need, saving plenty for future generations, um, really thinking about going in and, and harvesting in, in a light way, um, so it's not about sort of capitalism and maximizing, you know, profits or yields. It's about um, being, you know, honoring the land and being committed to one's role. Um, so, Sarah, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Well, thanks for asking. Um, when a question like that is asked of me, I often will ask myself, oh, my gosh, how will this be used against me at a later date? So. <laughs> Here, let me give it a shot. <laughs> um, I I do celebrate Thanksgiving, and um, you know, and I, I I'm an American. I live in the United States, and um, you know, and I I celebrate with traditional foods with my family, um, like a lot of Americans do. And so often, given the place where I live in Central Washington, among the Yakima people, I will serve. Or often, my husband Dan actually is the one who's better at serving salmon for Thanksgiving. And um, salmon is the traditional food of the Yakima people, and it's considered um, the 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 um, oh gosh, what can I say? The, the, an acknowledgement of the commitment between the land and the Creator and the Yakima people. Um, salmon is a crucial food, and so anyway, we often have salmon and and you know sweet potatoes and all this stuff. But I think on Thanksgiving, what we also do is is talk about. Um, you know, the history, we really do. I mean, and my son, uh, Micah, um, coming up, um, you know, it's just an opportunity to talk about it and, and, and try and do that. I mean, we try and do that in a, in a good way to remember what happened and also to, to express thanks. And another thing in our family is we express thanks every day. I mean, that's, that's our commitment, not just on Thanksgiving. We express thanks. Um, of course, we raise cattle um, for food. And so we give thanks for that sacrifice every time we eat. Um, we give thanks not only for the food, but also we thank the animal for the sacrifice, whether it's a chicken or a salmon or a beef that we're consuming that we've raised here. Or um, salmon, we don't raise salmon, but there are, there are local fishermen who uh, we buy salmon from and we give thanks for those also. So, you know, we do that once a year, but also in every single day, honoring the people that we live among. among. I guess one last thing I want to say is that the Yakima people also give thanks for water at mm. every meal. And they, and they give thanks for water first before the meal, every single meal. That's, um, 
That's so important. I really appreciate that. I, you know, our family has had a history of always saying grace before the meal, a prayer of Thanksgiving. But I'm really aware as you're saying that, Sarah, that prayer has never included Thanksgiving for water. Um, so that's something for me to to, to, to ponder. Um, thank you for saying that. Yeah, you bet. And then, Sherry, does your family celebrate Thanksgiving? We do. Um, and like I said, it's one of my favorite holidays because I think it's just um, it's so, you know, it doesn't. If you look at it, like I said, just on the surface and don't acknowledge the horrible history behind it and what it and what it um that it really is just, it's the most, to me, it is actually the most spiritual and most religiously simple of all of the holidays we we celebrate. I mean, labor and uh, Memorial day is sort of problematic for me as a, as a pacifist uh, Mennonite. I mean, so many of our holidays are based on celebrations of, you know, in honor of those who have died in war or also, uh, you know, presidents, um, you know, I, yes, I am a Christian minister, but the theology behind Christmas and Easter can have its own complexity to it. Yeah. So there's a way in which just Thanksgiving and giving thanks is to me, the heart of um, my own personal spirituality in a way. But like I said, of course it has this history behind it. So yeah, we, we, we have more and more done both and we more and more do both. If we have a Thanksgiving Sunday in our church of, mm. of honoring it as a time of gratitude while also, you know, talking about that history, which is, a, mm. which is an interesting thing to hold together. But I think that's what we're called to do. Mm. Yeah. And then one more thing I want to say, sorry, I'm going on and on about this. I think it would be really interesting and important to include Native people in Thanksgiving celebration and hmm. to give thanks for the work that they continue to do, right. that we continue to do as land protectors and water protectors. Because often in environmental struggles, Native peoples are the first people to struggle in that struggle and oftentimes the only people. Yeah, and I, I think um, Native peoples deserve um, the gratitude of all of all people for for being willing to 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 engage in that struggle. That is how I uh, how I have held it together. Those the, those that holiday with its complexity of meetings together and my, is is what you just said is acknowledging the uh, protection and care that span you know the millennia. Um, mm. of this land that is now offering me and my loved ones its bounty um, mm. and to continue to commit to doing what we can to come alongside that struggle to protect the land and the water uh, with indigenous people. So mm. that might be, um, maybe that will help our listeners hold the complexities of that holiday together also. Mm. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Should we move on to the next one? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So kind of on that theme, um, you know, many white settlers look to indigenous people for ideas about how to connect with the land and connect with the environment and, you know, protect, uh, I think, the environment. But it's also true that indigenous people have been, you know, assimilated, like 70% of native people live in suburbs. And so 
what wisdom do Native people actually have to offer the larger culture? And then even for folks who live on reservations, they're really living in such poverty that it's possible that living in an ecological way may not be at the top of their priorities. So again, the question comes down to what wisdom do Native folk actually have to offer when it comes to living in an in a ecological way? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I want to thank you, whoever the listener is who asked that question. That's a hard question. Um, I, I'm sure it's hard to. Um, I'm. I. I wonder how many people think that and are afraid to say that. So it's good. This is a good place um, to talk about those kinds of questions. So there are a couple of things I want to just. It's a complex question. I'm going to do my best to answer it um, the best way that I can from my point of view. Once again, always from my own point of view. So. Um, There are many, many different indigenous peoples. And when I say that, I mean languages and cultures. It's not a monolithic group. Um, You know, it's just like um, uh, thinking that all people that live in Africa are the same when you know that they're not because they live in different countries and have different languages and traditions in different lands and so on. Native people are just like that too. Uh, But, you know, there are some. There are some traditions that I think um, many, many indigenous peoples practice. And so, for example, um, there is a tradition of demonstrating reverence for creation. Um, That's um, that's been in in every native um, community or tradition that I've I've been a part of or that I've um, met and and fellowshiped with. Also, an understanding of being interconnected with all life. And taking just what you need um, and leaving plenty for future generations, ha- having that as a as a sort of a, 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 a core value. Um, and so those things I want to start just sort of saying these are traditions that I shouldn't say tradition. These are values that are shared um, among many, many indigenous peoples. And, and those values alone are um, crucial for the dominant culture um, to take on um, in in the process of of saving our world from um, from destruction. So, um, and I want to just talk about you know w- what is assimil- assimilation like for Native people. Seventy percent of people live in in um, in urban environments, and that's true. Um, uh, and I want to say a little bit about that. You know, the process of, of assimilation has been quite comprehensive and federal policy has favored the removal of indigenous peoples from their lands for 245 years since the founding of this nation. And yet there are still 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States and more than 200 tribes who have not been federally recognized but still exist. And I want to say survival is a form of resistance. Um, becoming federally recognized is no small thing. And I'm not going to go through all the steps that that takes, but I'll talk about a few of those. Federal recognition requires evidence that the tribe has maintained uh, tribal political authority or influence over its members throughout history, which means that in spite of um, consistent effort to remove and to exterminate and to destroy, these indigenous uh, societies have um, maintained a sense of who they are and tribal political authority um, throughout history. 
And so given removal, termination, these tribes have fought to retain their culture and land and spirituality and identity. And um, as a result of that, indigenous peoples um, know a thing or two. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you think... About holding on to your culture, about about surviving and holding on to your identity, and also about how to how to live in a good way, and and that includes um, in in um, that includes living in harmony with your environment or with your ecology. So, if you mm-hmm. think about how urban migration works in the dominant culture, it's common for folks in the dominant culture, and you know, I mean, white people and all people, you know, who are American to move away from their birthplace for education and employment or marriage or family. Um, And when a member of the dominant culture leaves their place of birth, we know they often retain the values and beliefs of their home communities, right? I mean, you don't live in your home community, do you, Sherry? Oh, no, far from it. Does that mean that you don't remember, you know, the values of the people that raised you? No, in fact, I feel like the whole purpose of our church and what I do there is to, in a way, not assimilate. (laughs) <laughs> and to and to retain those values and beliefs and and the culture and identity. So, yeah. You know, that's certainly true for Mennonites and even Christians and native people is the same. You know, wherever they are, they're maintaining their values and their culture um, and carrying that with them um, where they go. So native communities honor their traditional homelands. They're rooted in land. So even when individuals leave, they often return and maintain their reverence for their land and culture and spirituality and bring reference for the land where they're relocated as well. Um, And this is certainly true for me. The first place I went for healing years ago when I started working on the Doctrine of Discovery were the lands of my grandmother um, seeking healing in the waters there. And her traditions are the ones I share with my son. So he's grown up here on Yakima lands, but the traditions of our people are the ones that I have raised um, him with. So, um, and I want to give another example. Um, You know, Jews, uh, Jewish people have faced a diaspora that has spanned centuries. Um, And yet we know that regardless of where they live in the world, they value and revere their culture, language, and heritage, right? They have not stopped being Jews due to oppression, removal, war, genocide, displacement. They're still Jews. They remain a people. And natives have faced genocide, war, continued oppression, removal, and and displacement. Yet they remain distinct peoples as well. And so um, they they retain a reverence for, um, for the creator and creation, which is land and water and um and a sense of um defense and advocacy for for land and water and so i think i think um regardless of where indigenous people live in the united states or or what their economic status um they remain our, our best land protectors and water protectors. Uh, yeah. And the other thing I want to say about that and the final thing, Sherry, I'm sorry to be go on and on. I think po- poverty is really a challenging concept. I don't want to dismiss how difficult it is to deal with 
um, economic, um, you know, poverty at the economic level. And this desire to become affluent, I want to just say it's not universally shared. Um, so, and, you know, I, I think we could do a whole podcast just on that. Yeah. Not everybody wants the same thing, you know? So this saying, idea, not everybody wants the American dream. No, not everybody does. And, and the fact is, you know, if you see native peoples who want to stay on their own land and their own reservation and you say, look at those poor people over there, you know, that's really dismissing um, what that community is, who those people are and what they have to offer to the world. Um, and, 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 you know, being rooted in your community and your land and your language and tradition is not felt to be a sense of poverty. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of wealth. Yes. <laughs> and, and it is seen as, as a, as a form of wealth, you know, all things pass away. You have a big house, you know, in a hundred years, in the, you know, less than a hundred years, 30 years, the paint's stripping off, you know, and there's that, you know, you have shingles missing or whatever. I mean, that, that stuff, it's, it's going to pass away. That's what happens in this world. Um, the, the sense of tradition and language and culture and groundedness over generations does not pass away. Mm. Hey. Mm. I was, I, I thought of that, um, um, verse, you know, the, the word of the Lord lives, our word of our God lives forever. And, um, I feel mm. like when you talk about that connection to culture and identity and land, it has that same sense of groundedness of eternity of eternalness to it. Um, mm -hmm. And that just feels like in a world where even people who seem to be comfortably middle-class live with such contingency and uncertainty. And we're seeing that now, you know, in the economy, how, how much that, it makes even people who had been formerly secure feel very insecure and unstable. And then I think it always asks the question, where does our true wealth come from? Mm. Um, which I think you've spoken to in that answer to that question. So thank you. You bet. And, I, and I'm going to just do this, what I've been doing all through this whole episode. Here's my last thing I want to say to our listeners. If you have participated in this diaspora, that is to say, you you think, oh, I'm native. I think I'm native. I have a native ancestor, but I don't. I don't think I'm real Indian because I don't. I don't know the tradition. I didn't keep traditional, or my parents were in foster care, or um, I'm a mestiza, so I know I am from, uh, or a mestizo, and I know that I am a person of European and indigenous heritage long in my past, but I don't know if there is a place for me. There is a place for you. And, and we want to, to engage you and bring you into this work. Uh, your indigenous identity has value and it's real. Let me reach out and let me walk with you in that process of reclaiming that part of who you are. Hmm. Thank you, Sarah. I am I am moved by that invitation you just made, and I hope others are also. Um, we have more questions, but I think they may have to wait for another episode. So um, are you willing to do this again, Sarah? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Love it. <laughs> okay. And I, I want to say, hey, listeners, thanks. Thank you for 
for being willing to uh, to ask these questions. This is so important. This is a good way to to ask and to hear answers because you know sometimes it's like, man, I don't really understand this, but I'm too embarrassed to ask. Please ask. This is how we move forward together as community, grow together as people. And I will put in the show notes how you can directly, you know, reach out to to me and ask those questions so that we can use it for a future Ask an Indian episode. Thank mm-hmm. you, Sarah. You bet. Thanks, Sherry. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you.